you have your Bible with you, you can turn to John 17. John 17. When we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating the miracle of God with us. We are celebrating the miracle of God stooping to become flesh, the miracle of the Incarnation. You know, you'll remember uh, from a few months ago when Pastor Ken started his series in the book of John, he brought up that Joan Osborne song called One of Us. uh, And I'm going to steal that as well because it's so appropriate. But in that song uh, that she sings, she asks several times, what if God was one of us? And one of the things that she says, one of the verses is, if God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. If God had a face, would you want to see it if it meant that you'd have to believe? Hopefully, uh, you're here today because you have seen the face of Jesus Christ in the Word and because you have believed. Pastor Ken also uh, brought up a couple of lines from a Christmas hymn that most of us are familiar with uh, and how different the words are that Charles Wesley penned in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, where he says, Veiled in flesh... The Godhead, see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means simply God with us. It's important for us to have a correct understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to have what we would call an orthodox understanding of the person of Christ. Orthodoxy uh, refers simply to, from the, the root there, ortho is, uh, is simply straight or correct. So, if you visit the orthodontist, as my daughter is going to have to do very soon here, because she sucked her thumb uh, continuously for three years, is probably going to be entering the Guinness Book of World Records here. Uh, She's going to have to visit the orthodontist to get her teeth straightened. (laughs) It's important for us as Christians to make sure that we have correct doctrine, that we have straight doctrine. And so this morning, I want us to think about an orthodox understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of things that we could uh, study, but we're going to limit it. Uh, just to the fact of the incarnation, what we call the incarnation. The word incarnation comes from the Latin term carnis, which is flesh. So it is literally the enfleshment of deity. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, becomes a person. And the idea of God becoming flesh is found in several texts throughout the New Testament. We have Jesus coming in the flesh in 1 John 4, 2, being sent in the flesh in Romans 8, 3. We have him appearing in the flesh in 1 Timothy 3, 16. He suffered in the flesh in 1 Peter 4, 1, died in the flesh in 1 Peter 3, 18, made peace by abolishing in the flesh, in his flesh, the enmity. In Ephesians chapter 2, and making reconciliation in the body of his flesh in Colossians chapter 1. In short, from John 1, which we've already studied several t- in, uh, through several different messages, the word became flesh. Now, an obvious inference from the fact of the incarnation is that there was an existence that Christ enjoyed prior to. To the incarnation. You're in John 17. We can look at verse 5. Text that Pastor Ken has already preached on this morning. But if you look at verse 5 of John 17. 
This is Jesus's what we call high priestly prayer where he prays to the father and he says this. Now, father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Let me ask you a question. What are some of the things that this verse clues us in about the existence of Jesus prior to the incarnation? You guys ever talk in here? I don't know if this ever happens, but we'll try to (laughs) know. (laughs) Well, it's a day of firsts. (laughs) No encouragement. Bob. Okay, eternal. We see that from the fact that he is speaking to the Father and he says that he existed before the world began. Jesus eternally has existed in a perfect relationship within the Trinity for all time prior to the creation of the universe. In fact, you see in John 1, John echoes the language of Genesis. The very first words of Genesis are in the beginning God. And in John chapter 1, John echoes that same language by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And we see later that the word as identified later in the chapter was none other than Jesus Christ. What else does this verse it tells us it tells us that Christ existed eternally? What else did it tell us? Does it tell us about his existence? I'm actually used to this. I'm actually used to long periods of silence, so it doesn't bother me. <laughs> Anything else? Anyone want to be brave and say what else this tells us? Okay, he shared in the he shared in the glory, he, because Jesus prays as Pastor Ken has told us, glorify me, and as the verse tells us, Jesus prays, glorify me, Father. Jesus Christ was in existence eternally and equally with the Father. It would certainly be blasphemous, would it not, for, G- for anyone other than the person of Christ to say to the Father, glorify me. And yet Jesus does that. A third thing, and I'll just say this, the third part of the existence that Christ enjoyed prior to the incarnation He says in 17.5, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus Christ existed in a in a relationship with the other members of the Godhead, a perfect relationship. This this relationship that they enjoy is one of perfect joy. Perfect peace. Perfect happiness. God did not create Because he needed something outside of himself, did he? God didn't make us because there was some need that he felt. Something that was missing from the existence that he enjoyed. That he could only fill by creating the world. God created the world for his own glory, for his own pleasure, by the own pleasure of his will. And the relationship that the members of the Trinity enjoyed together was one of absolute perfection. A relationship which you and I really can't even identify with. Have you ever had a relationship that was completely perfect? The only relationship that I can think of that's completely perfect is is mine and Erica's. But other than that... (laughs) Other than that, can I hear an amen, please? (laughs) Uh, But seriously, we don't even know in in our mode of existence, we don't know what it's like to live in a state of perfect bliss. We don't have any idea what that's like. We have moments, glimpses, but we don't we don't understand what it is to have a perfect existence. And yet that is the existence that the person of Christ enjoyed, that the Trinity enjoyed prior to creation. Yet, that manner of existence 
that Christ enjoyed, he was willing to forsake to take on flesh. To fulfill the meaning of his name, Emmanuel, God with us. And God was willing to do that so much so that we see Christ, who has enjoyed a perfect, unbroken, joyous, blissful relationship with the Father and knows nothing else, where we see words recorded at his death. Why have you forsaken me? That is a fantastic thing to think about. That God, who exists perfectly, needs nothing outside of himself, would go so far as to take on flesh and live like you and me, even to the point where he utters words, undergoing an experience that we could never ever imagine. Why have you forsaken me? That's the kind of existence that Christ enjoyed that he left to become flesh. And I want to spend the rest of our time talking a little bit about this person of Christ, this God-man. I want to talk a little bit about some errors in explaining the person of Christ. I want to talk a little bit about what the incarnation meant, the pieces, pull it apart, examine a little bit, give it an overview. And then finally, I want to talk about the significance of the incarnation to you and I. Let me give you a couple of unscriptural views of the incarnation and specifically explaining the relationship between God, deity and man and how those things go together. We have, first of all, Apollinarianism. These are people's names, believe it or not, named after these guys. So if any of you are uh, pregnant, you might want to consider the name Apollinarius um, because there's, it's a good chance that not too many people are going to have that. Uh, Apollinarianism. This view takes it that the only thing human about Christ was his body. The only thing human about Christ was his body. We'll critique these later. But Apollinarianism, Apollinarius taught that the only thing human about Christ was his body. Then we have Nestorianism. Nestorius taught that Christ was actually two different persons. And so that can't be right, because if that was right, then we'd have to change Holy, 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 our song that we sing. We'd have to change it to God in four persons, blessed quadrinity. And that doesn't fit. So that's obviously wrong. (laughs) No, seriously, uh, uh, Nestorius taught that Christ was two persons. That also was incorrect. Then we have monophysitism. This is the false view that the human nature of Christ and the divine nature of Christ combine together to make a sort of third category. Meaning that Christ was not really fully human Or fully God, he was kind of this third thing. And of course, people spent lots of time debating this and condemning one another for this and that in the early centuries of the church. Until we reach a church council called the Council of of Chalcedon or Chalcedon, depending on how you want to pronounce that. That happened in 451. In 451... They decided that different members of the church, leaders of the church, came together in part to try to delineate a correct understanding of the person of Christ. Is he two person? Is he two different persons somehow in the same body? Do his natures mix together to create this third kind of thing? Um, is he not really human? Did he just take on a body so he was just God kind of in a body? I mean, what's going on here? And they debated these things and they came up. This is in the year 451. Okay, this is a millennium and a half ago that they wrote out this orthodox understanding of, of the person of Christ, which is still held today by Bible-believing Christians. And I'm going to read to you parts of this. And there's going to be language in here that's going to be a little bit odd, so I'll try to, try to give you uh, the translation every once in a while. 
But this is what this is what the council said. We teach men to confess one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect or complete when they say perfect, complete in Godhead and also perfect or complete in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable and by that they mean rational of a rational soul and body. Consubstantial, that's of the same being, the same substance, okay? Consubstantial with the Father, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us, according to the manhood. Now, this is really fancy, but they're just saying he is truly God, truly man. In all things like unto us, yet without sin. To be acknowledged in two natures. Inconfusably, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by their union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son. That's a mouthful, and I don't expect you to remember all of that. But it's amazing. Fifteen hundred years ago, these men are wrote out an orthodox understanding of the person of Christ that a church like ours would still hold to today. And you can tell by the wording that they use in this statement that they are navigating the minefield of errors that I've already presented to you about the person of Christ. So let's talk about we're not going to break down every single thing in this in this written statement because that would take forever and I know I don't have forever so we're going to pull (laughs) getting amens from that Um, so we're going to pull a few things out and look at them and you can turn in your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 2 and we'll be able to park here uh, for a lot of this So now we're talking a little bit about an orthodox understanding of the incarnation, the enfleshment of the second person of the Trinity. The first thing that that statement recognized was that Christ had a fully has a fully divine nature. Christ has a fully divine nature. He was fully and completely God. You're in Philippians chapter two now, I assume. So we. I'll read verses six through eight for you. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We can see the two aspects of the person of Christ in these short verses. The fact that he was fully God and fully man. We see from verse 6 the fact that he was fully God. Where it says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Some of you may have translations of the scriptures which say that he was in the form of God. The reason they say that is because the Greek word that's translated there is the Greek word morphe. And that word can be translated form or nature. And when we think of form, we generally think of something's outward form of what it looks like. But that's not necessarily the idea that's captured in what Paul is writing here in these verses. He's not just talking about the outward form, something that strikes the eye in that way. He's talking about something that's, that's deeper than that. And I can show you, show you that that's true by turning to a couple of other passages and letting you see the, the way the same word is used. Could you go to Romans 8.29, for instance? Romans 8.29 says that whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That word image there is the same word. Pastor Ken mentioned 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning in his message. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 
verse 18, it says that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are changed into that image. Now, those are just two references, but you can see there probably quite obviously that the change that is supposed to go up, that, that is going on in the hearts of those of us who are believers, that change is much more than an outward change. God's plans run much deeper than that. When God saves us, he has a plan that's going to change us to our very core. We are dead in our trespasses and sins prior to the work of the Spirit regenerating our hearts, giving us new life. But God has a plan that he has begun in each one of us who have come to Christ in faith, where he, is, he isn't just changing us on the outside, where we aren't, just, we aren't just reforming certain bad habits or things about our character. He's changing us at our very our core, making us, conforming us, molding us to the image of Christ, something that he's going to do and has promised to do all through our lives and is going to finally, fully, and completely do when we have glorified bodies with him in heaven. That's the image that he's talking about in those kind of passages. So that's why the New International Version of the Scriptures translates that word morphe, which we've looked at in Philippians chapter 2, and we're back in Philippians chapter 2 now. That's why it translates it, who being in very nature God. That's a statement of deity. That is a statement that Christ's essence, his very essence, his very nature was God. And so he goes on to say that he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be reached for. It was a possession that was already his. And as Hebrews tells us throughout the book, we have been, God has sent prophets, priests, kings, angelic messengers to give us his message, to give us revelation. And yet Jesus stands alone in the crowd, unique in the manner he reveals God to us, because he does not just tell us about God. He is God. And we see that all throughout the New Testament. Colossians 2, verse 9, Paul writes, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It took him a while to come around to it, but even some of the disciples started to get it. Where we have Thomas in John 20 kneeling before the Lord and saying, before Christ and saying, my Lord and my God. Or we could take the words of Jesus himself. In John chapter 20, Jesus is almost asked as much. And his response is very telling. Let's see if I can find John chapter 20 here. Sorry, John 10, if you're, if you're turning there. There's conflict over who Jesus claims to be. And some people ask him in verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my father's name testify about me. So he's saying, look at what I've done. Who could do the works that I've done but God? The works that I've done testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Who but God can grant eternal life? I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. It, it can't be stated much more clearly than that. That Jesus regard himself... And it was not blasphemous for him to regard himself as completely 
equal with the father. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And in this work that I am doing of saving them, no one can pull them out of my hand. No one can pull them out of the father's hand. Why? Because we are one and the same. And we could also continue to page through the Gospels or through the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, the letters that are in the New Testament, and see all sorts of divine attributes that Jesus manifests. We could see that he is omniscient. He's omnipotent. We could see that he's self-existent, sovereign, eternal, that he's recognized as creator. But an orthodox understanding affirms that Jesus Christ was fully and completely God. It is not necessarily fashionable to believe that today. You and I will find many people who are perfectly willing to believe in Jesus of some sort. But unwilling to believe in a Jesus who is truly God. And so we have so-called theologians writing books that sound great about who Jesus really was. We have theologians like John Hick who say the doctrine of the incarnation involves the claim that the moral, but not the metaphysical, attributes of God have been embodied so far as this is possible in a finite human life, namely that of Jesus. That's a fancy way of saying Jesus wasn't really God. Jesus embodied the moral attributes of God. So when we think of God as love and compassion and and one who wanted to serve and help, Jesus embodied God in that way. But he was not truly God. We reject that kind of thinking. Jesus embodied more than the moral attributes of God. And we need to remember the words of of C.S. Lewis, who's written on just this point and reminds us of this thing. C.S. Lewis says about Jesus and about someone who would say this about Jesus. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. I don't even know what a poached egg is. Or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. And I think if you give the New Testament a fair reading, you're going to agree with that statement. He hasn't left that option open to us. Jesus Christ is fully God, and an orthodox orthodox understanding of that is going to recognize that truth. We see that Christ is also fully man, fully and completely man, not partially a human, not some aspects of humanity, not mostly human, but fully and completely a human, just like you and me, yet without sin. That's the only difference. And we understand that sin isn't a necessary component of humanity, is it? Sin isn't what makes us human. Now, as humans uh, afflicted by the fall, we are all poisoned. And we all have an indwelling sin principle in us. But sin is not a necessary component of humanity. Jesus Christ was as human as you or I, yet without sin. Look again at Philippians chapter 2 if you're still there because we can look at the second half the portion of verses that we read. We see he in his very nature is God. He doesn't regard equality with God something to be grasped because it's already a possession of his. Then it goes on to say, but made himself nothing. 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. These verses tell us a lot about the humanity of Christ. They tell us, first of all, that he made himself nothing. Again, some of you may have a translation that say he emptied himself. And that word can be translated that way. But several other translations of the scripture say that he made himself nothing, or as the King James says, I believe, made himself of no reputation. And because this word can refer to something being emptied, people have debated, well, if Jesus Christ emptied himself of, nothing, of something, what did he empty himself of? If he, if he is God, what does he empty himself of to become human? What part of his deity does he lay aside? And I believe that that is the wrong question to be asking. As we have already affirmed, Jesus did not lay aside his deity to become human. He was fully God. What part could God get rid of himself to, to, to incarnate? There's nothing that, that God could get rid of and still be God. So we're asking the wrong question if we're asking the, what that means of what he emptied himself of. And I think the way the NIV and several other translations have translated is, cor is correct, where he makes himself nothing. Basically, the fact that, they, that, that Paul uses that word here in this passage is a metaphor for the things that follow. Well, what does it mean that he made himself nothing? What does Paul mean by that? Well, we don't have to stop our reading there and try to figure out what that could possibly mean. He goes on to tell us in the following phrases that he uses. What does it mean that, that Christ made himself nothing? Well, he took on the very nature of a servant. There's our word again, morphe. Jesus took on the very essence of what it means to be a servant. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he embodied servanthood. And we can see examples of his servanthood from his earthly ministry. We see the example even last week of Jesus stooping like a servant to wash the feet of his disciples. We see his servanthood in various ways culminating in the ultimate act of service to you and I dying in our stead. Jesus took on the very essence of servanthood one would expect the coming messiah if he's going to become flesh to at least take on the flesh of a dignitary at least take on the existence of a king dwell with us for a while mingle with us as if he was on a un mission but retire to a five-star hotel jesus didn't do that Jesus went all the way. And in doing so, embodied what it means to be a servant. He was made in human likeness. He came and dressed like we dress. He was transported around like we are transported around. He ate the food of the time. He slept in the same sort of houses they slept in. And he did it as a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even that on a cross. When Jesus Christ came and was born, it was the opening act of the incarnation. The opening act that was going to culminate was always driving towards a death. And when we celebrate Christmas we do so with the awful reality of the cross looming in the background. Jesus Christ was born to die. It was part of the plan from the very beginning. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, the Bible says that he was delivered over 
by the deliberate foreknowledge of God. The cross wasn't an accident. It wasn't a road bump and a plan that hadn't gone exactly the way he wanted it to go. The cross was the intention of Christ. He came all along to suffer. And he had to become fully man to do that. If there is one word that I could use to sum up what we see here in Philippians chapter 2, I would use the word humiliation. It was, it was a humbling experience for the Lord of glory, the King of glory, who has the riches of heaven, the re- perfect relationships, the existence that we talked about, discussed earlier, for him to walk away and take on the form of a servant and become a man. But become a man he did. And he took part in every, almost every dimension of human experience. He was a baby. He was born. His mother had to feed him and wash him, just like we have to do. As a child, he had to learn to read. He had to learn his alphabet. He had to learn to count. He had to learn that something was hot and he shouldn't touch it. He was a teenager and learn what it was like to grow up, perhaps to be rejected or made fun of, to be on the outside looking in. As an adult, he learned what it was like to work hard, probably at an age earlier than many of us did. He learned what it was like to hit his thumb with a hammer and feel pain. Jesus Christ as a human, experienced what it was to sorrow. He experienced what it was like to lose someone that he loved. He experienced anger. He saw injustice and recoiled from it, just like we do. Jesus knew what it was like to be tired and hungry. He knew what it was like to celebrate something, to be happy about some milestone. Jesus Christ was fully human. The Bible presents a picture of him that's fully human. And though that may make us uncomfortable sometimes because it's not this neat package, one author says this. It's not something we like to do. Talking about thinking of Jesus this way. It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clean the manure from around the manger. Wipe the sweat out of his eyes. Pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable. But don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world, for only if we let him in can he pull us out. Jesus Christ was fully human for us. So if Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, how do these how does this divine nature and this human nature how do we understand them going together? A few more points from the creed that we read. Theologians have come up with the term hypostatic union to describe the union of the divine nature and the the human nature. Let me tell you a little bit about theologians. Theologians sit in libraries and they read big books that are dusty and they read them in languages that you and I don't read. And they keep a pad of paper near them and they come up with big words because that's what they're paid to do. And one of the big words that theologians have come up with is hypostatic union. And it makes them feel better than us. Uh, but hypostatic union is actually a simple concept to understand. It's a, well, it's not a simple concept to understand, but the word itself is simple. Who can explain God becoming flesh, really? Uh, but hypostatic union, that term, 
simply refers to the substance or person of Christ, the union of these two substances, the divine nature and the human nature. They are put together in the person of Christ, in one person. So, what do we mean by that? Well, here's a few things, points of clarification. First of all, Christ has, if we're going to have an orthodox, a correct, a straight understanding of the person of Christ, we've got, to, we've got to keep these things in mind. Christ has two natures, but is one person. One person. So we have a divine nature and a human nature together in one person. That's different from the doctrine of the Trinity. The, the Trinity, we have three persons. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. And we can see from Scripture the fact that there are three persons by the fact that they address one another. For instance, in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. We see at Jesus' baptism, in the opening chapters of John, the Father addressing the Son. We see, this kind of, we see these kind of interpersonal relationships within the Godhead. But we don't see that with Christ, do we? We don't see Christ having conversations with himself. That would be silly almost. But we don't see it. Somehow, and I'm not claiming to be able to explain all of this to you, but somehow these two natures, this human nature and this fully divine nature, reside together in one person. So we need to keep that in mind. We see, uh, we see the human nature or the, the, the person of Jesus Christ taken as a whole. So we see things that are true of the Godhead of, a divine, of, of the divine nature ascribed to the person as a whole. And we see things that we think of more in human terms ascribed to the person as a whole. For instance, the Lord of glory, a reference to his deity, is referenced as being crucified in places like 1 Corinthians 8.28. And we see human acts ascribed to the divine, and we don't have time to go through all of that, but... If we're going to have an orthodox understanding of the person of Christ, we must understand that Christ has two natures, but is one person. Another thing that we're going to have to keep clear if we're going to have an orthodox understanding of the person of Christ is that each nature remains distinct and retains its own properties. Each nature remains distinct and retains its own properties. This is to counteract that heresy they talked about where they combine together and they squish together and we have kind of like a third thing where he's not truly fully human or, or fully God because he's this hybrid third thing. This creed rejects that. Uh, Wayne Grudem notes, Wayne Grudem is the guy that writes our leadership uh, textbook for, for Leadership Institute, for those of you men who are part of Leadership Institute. Wayne Grudem notes that one nature does some things that the other nature does not. And that helps us understand certain things like Mark chapter 13, verse 32, where Jesus says, no one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Helps us make sense of that, that the human nature of Christ could say something like that while the divine knew. And it's actually something that happens. We, we, we see it over and over again and almost don't think about it. But when you start looking at the way, the way Christ acts throughout the Gospels, you see this over and over again. For instance, we have Jesus feeling tired and being asleep in a boat. He's so tired, he's sleeping through a storm. His human nature needs rest. And then the disciples come wake him up, and what does he do? Boom! Calm. We see this all the time. And it's actually, it's actually amazing when you stop and think about the juxtaposition of the divine and the human put together. At one, at one moment, being so tired, he can sleep through a storm, and at the next calming the storm by the power of his word. That is the God-man. That is Jesus Christ. 
And as I've said already, thirdly, each nature is full and complete. Jesus does not have a partially human nature and a partially divine nature. He was fully God and fully man. That is an orthodox understanding of the Trinity. Of course, it's an overview, a brief overview at that. But that is an orthodox understanding of the Trinity. Now, in the last few minutes that we have, I want to talk a little bit about the significance of that. First of all, we find significance in the doctrine of God being of Christ being fully God, fully man. It's absolutely essential to the substitutionary atonement, absolutely essential to the substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement is the fact that Christ substituted in our stead and bore on his head and in his body the wrath and punishment of God that you and I deserve. That's the substitutionary atonement. Thomas Paine, who wrote articles that were influential in sparking the revolution in our country, Thomas Paine was a, was a humanist, a deist, not a believer. And he wrote this, Is it a fact that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world? And how is it proved? If a God, he could not die. And as a man, he could not redeem. Well, he's absolutely right. God can't be killed and a man can't redeem. And there enters the the perfection of the incarnation because you have God and man together. As God, he can redeem. He can pay the penalty. I cannot I cannot die for you. I cannot take God's penalty, uh, God's wrath. I cannot bear that penalty for you because I'm as sinful as you are. None of us can take away that penalty for another. But God can because he doesn't deserve it. And another thing to think about, the fact that he was fully human, the fact that he spent time, 30 years living without really having this ministry, not being well known, and we kind of think, you know, they're, they're not really recorded. Uh, you know, what was going on? What was the point? You know, why didn't he start sooner? I mean, he only had three years, a drop in the bucket of his life. Those years were very important because Jesus didn't just bear the penalty for sin. He lived a perfect life in our stead. The life that you and I were supposed to live, that none of us have or ever could, he lived. So he bears the penalty for our sin negatively, but positively he fulfills the righteous demands of the law that you and I could never fill. Those 30 years that he spent on earth weren't wasted years, even though we don't know what was going on through most of them. He gets baptized and John says, why, why, why am I baptizing you? You're, you're the Lord. And he says, I have to do that because I have to fulfill all righteousness. That's what he was doing. All of those years living the perfect life that you and I have failed to live every single day. Only the God man could do that. And an orthodox understanding of the Trinity is absolutely essential to the atonement. It's absolutely foundational to the gospel, which you have placed your trust in. and Which I have placed my trust in. Another thing, another significance of the incarnation, and this is the fact that Jesus Christ did not just become incarnate for a period of time. Jesus Christ took on flesh and remains, remains that way now in a glorified body. But but the scriptures refer over and over again to Jesus Christ after he has ascended to the father as the man Christ Jesus. He remains a human at the right hand of God, interceding for us. When I said Jesus went all the way at the beginning, I meant it. Jesus Christ, I mean, maybe it's conceivable that he would become human for a little while to get the job done and then go back to the original state. And yes, he is enjoying that state of perfect relationship with the Father. But Jesus permanently identified with you and I. Permanently. Hebrews Chapter two, verse 17 and 18 says this. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way 
in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted and he is able to help those who are tempted. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Philippians three talks about our citizenship in heaven and says that we, we eagerly await a savior there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Or in 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Is that not a comforting thing to you? Jesus Christ has permanently identified Remember, we talked about all those things that he experienced. He knows what it's like to sorrow. He knows what it's like to lose something. And he, can, he knows what it's like to be tempted. And he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father, right now, permanently, the incarnate Son of God. I'll mention a last thing as you go, but it's from Philippians chapter 2. You see, in Philippians chapter 2, we looked just at what the Bible had to say about Jesus Christ. But that context of Philippians chapter 2, Paul is addressing us. And he's telling us that we need to be like Jesus. And he says in the previous verse, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love being one in spirit of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then he goes on to talk about the lengths at which Christ went to identify with us and encourages us to do the same and follow in his footsteps. Hopefully, in the minutes that we've had this morning, giving you something to rejoice in this Christmas week. I hope when you wake up on Thursday morning, there are thoughts of family and fun and food. And I just did three F's, alliteration, didn't even try. Um, you think about those things. But I hope your mind is drawn to the fantastic truth of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you were willing to go to such lengths to identify with us and display your love. We thank you that we can celebrate the opening act of the incarnation this week. We're thankful that you were willing to do that, to die for us, that you were obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You didn't just die, but you rose and you ascended to heaven and you were there preparing a place for us, interceding for us, and one day are going to transform our bodies into bodies that are like yours. Whereas Pastor Ken said, we're going to be like you. We're going to see you the way you are. Thank you for that, Lord. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.